Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers today. and be jumping aside. Countrywide, the politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello, Brooke Nindorf with you for Countrywide. Thanks for your company. Coming up over the next half an hour, it's been one year since grain growers started hearing some strange rumours that their barley was going to be hit by huge tariffs from China. And then it snowballed from there. A year on, there's been some big turnarounds in agriculture. And today, we're going to take a look at those hardest hit. Plus, a shortage of truck drivers, particularly those carrying livestock. It's just getting harder and harder, all the rules and regulations. And I think that's why a lot of the drivers don't want to do it anymore because it's that much involved with it nowadays. And uh, you've only got to do, you know, like bugger up your longbook by a mistake and it's $200 fine or something and they just get sick of it. That and much more on Countrywide. From the top end to Tassie, Countrywide on ABC Radio. But first today, it was a year ago this week the grain growers started hearing some strange rumours that their barley was going to be hit with huge tariffs from China. Well, that rumour turned out to be true, and in the following weeks and months, many other farmers were hit as agriculture became the whipping boy for growing tensions between China and Australia. And that diplomatic quagmire has continued to bog down trade. For commodities like wine and lobsters, China was all too willing to pay a premium for clean, green Australian produce. And when those markets shut overnight, farmers were left with massive orders with no destination. A year on, there's been some remarkable turnarounds and some important lessons. Let's join rural reporters right around the country to explore what happened to those hardest hit, starting in Tasmania with Fiona Breen. First it was COVID and then trade barriers with China that saw the collapse of demand for Australia's exports of rock lobster. China bought about 90% of the national rock lobster haul. The fishing fleets in WA, South Australia, Victoria and Tasmania came to a standstill. At its peak two years ago, Tasmanian fishers were getting up to $130 a kilo. Recently, it plummeted to as low as $20 a kilo. At Margate Wharf, fisher Kent Way is selling to locals. It's 12 months since we've had some of this disruption to the market with China. What's changed one year on? We have lost most of our markets to overseas, mainly China. For us, personally, what's changed, we operate two vessels. I have one tied up next to me here but hasn't operated for nearly three months. I've lost uh, my skipper and uh, crew. Uh, They've had to go to, uh, they're working on a fish farm, so they were lucky to get that job. I suggested they they head in that direction because I couldn't guarantee an an income. Their pays had probably dropped between 30 and 50%. We have continued fishing at a much reduced uh, operating costs as well. So we've looked at some of our operating costs and tried to cut some corners, but we haven't made a profit in uh, six months. Uh, Our last trip was the first time we've made a profit in six months, Fiona. So prices at the moment, are they still right down? Because you did reach low levels of something like $25 a kilo beach price at one point. Yes, the price has come up since uh, January 
February, uh, the prices were really low, down around $20 a kilo, $20-$25 depending on the animal. We have been receiving somewhere between $45 and up to $70 in the last few weeks, but it's only a temporary measure. A lot of the other states aren't working at the moment and we're the only ones supplying the local market. It's a short term thing, it might last for the next couple of months and after that I can see in November, December, January, it's going to be a lot of lobsters come in. They're all going to be heading towards the local market and the price will plummet again and boats will, more boats will um, have to tie up. Kent Way, lobster fisher down here in Margate in southern Tasmania. So hope there that talks with China will resume and that market opens sooner rather than later. Time now to talk about wine and we're joined by Lucas Forbes in South Australia. The Australian wine industry's troubles started in November when the Chinese government put tariffs on Australian wine, effectively ending a trade worth more than a billion dollars to the Australian industry. The Chinese government alleged that the Australian industry had been dumping cheap wine into the Chinese market, effectively underselling their own producers. That's something the industry has continually denied to this day. However, that's left the Australian industry with a massive hole to fill, a massive hole roughly in the shape of 130 million litres of wine that it needs to find a home for. I'm here at Killacanoon Wines, one of the largest wineries in the Clare Valley. To find out more, I'm joined by Killacanoon General Manager Travis Fuller. Mr Fuller, how would you describe the impacts of the Chinese government's tariffs on Australian wine? Well, the impacts, uh, you know, upwards of $10 million per annum, which doesn't seem like a lot, but that's a lot in a local community such as Clare, and all of that money essentially comes back here or starts here. What are you hearing about the impact on the wine industry? Well, it's significant. I mean, there are upwards of a 1,000 businesses and wineries in Australia that were purely geared to the China market, and that, that was their sole output for the wine that they produced. There are others that have a more diverse footprint such as ourselves and and plenty of others where China was a piece of the business. It was a growing portion. It's not one that we wanted to throw away because we've invested heavily to, to be there. However, you know, the reality is is that all of the players who had distribution in China now have to look for other outlets. How would you describe the health of the wine industry in the current context? Look, I think we're, we're thriving at the moment. There's a lot to be done, don't get me wrong. But if we put in COVID-19, uh, which we haven't really covered uh, as well, there's been closing of some markets, but this whole idea of direct-to-consumer, of cellar doors in the region, of people buying off online stores has grown enormously. That has not only increased the volume but also the value of sales in the domestic market in the last 12 months significantly. So, you know, it's all about innovation in the wine industry and we've been slow at it in some ways but, you know, we're starting to get some momentum. Mr Fuller, thank you for taking us through what's going on in the wine market but now it's time to find out what's been happening in the barley market with Joe Prendergast. 300 kilometres north of Perth, Jeff Cosgrove is ploughing a paddock ready for seeding. He dropped barley out of his grain growing program last year. That was when China placed an 80% import tariff on Australian barley, effectively shutting down what was a $1.5 billion trade. But this season, he's back to normal plantings. He'll put in about 800 hectares, and that's a decision based on agronomy and also the swift recovery of the barley price 
to about $280 a tonne. It dropped down to probably $220 straight away when, when the first was talked that the tariff would go on. It did come back by harvest, probably got back up to that sort of $280 range, I suppose, which is uh, pretty manageable from our, from our perspective. What would you say is the most important thing you've learnt from these trade disputes with China that we've seen over the past 12, 24 months? Probably don't panic too much, too quickly. A lot of it's out of our control. As growers, basically, yield still king. Just grow as much of anything that you're growing as much as you can. You know, the entire world market's still consuming grain. Um, obviously, a lot of ours was going to China and it was nice and easy, And but there's still livestock production in every other country in the world that, that are feeding feed grains. And it was just a matter of finding a home for the barley. What would you do if you were the trade minister how would you try and sort out this situation with China, this lack of dialogue and this ongoing tension? Well, if I was the Trade Minister, I'd, I'd probably ring all the other ministers, that, the Foreign Minister, the Prime Minister and all the rest and tell them to stop staring them up and start with you making my job pretty hard. But yeah, speak to the customer, see what, you know, try and get to the bottom of, of what the issue is. China obviously works in a different different way to how, how we work here. If you, if you can't come to a reasonable conclusion or solution, you know, it might be as well to walk away not burn any more bridges, just get out of there and, and find somewhere better. After losing its biggest customer, the barley industry has steadied. Beef and lamb have also been impacted by trade tensions. John Daly has more from Queensland. The beef industry was pulled into the fray last year when China suspended several export licences for facilities in New South Wales and Queensland for labelling and chemical residue issues. Export value and volumes to China have declined 28 and 35% last year. But the drought and increasing supply from South America also played a role in that. Anthony Winter is a Wagyu cattle producer in southern Queensland and he lost market access when the abattoir his processor used was slapped with an export ban. But he has since managed to find ways around trade barriers. I suppose we're in, in unknown territory. Surprisingly, there hasn't been too much change. I mean, yes, we were concerned about it. We're lucky enough that we have a brand. We have established relationships with our customers and with our suppliers. And I guess, yeah, we've built on the efficiencies that we sort of brought in due to drought. It's really been onward and upward. We haven't had any major setbacks that we were worried we're going to have. So essentially you have found another abattoir and you have kept your access to that key Chinese market? Yeah, that's true. So uh, when the ban went on uh, Casino, which is where our cattle were going, our customer, they moved to another abattoir where they were able to get enough kill space and just all we do, we just uh, truck our animals to a different place now. So if you were Trade Minister, if you had some kind of control over this trade relationship with China, what would you do? I guess just from my point of view, we've certainly seen how important it is not just to rely on one customer. In saying that, China is obviously a huge part of our business in Australia, whether it's for Wagyu product, barley, so yeah, I, I, we've got to continue to deal with China, they're such a huge customer, but we also have got to remember not to have all the eggs in one basket. The Federal Department of Agriculture says its technical submissions and efforts to overturn the bans have made little progress. In the meantime, rising domestic demand and other countries like Japan and South Korea are softening the blow for displaced exports. Now I'll hand it over to Kath Sullivan, who's talking to the decision makers in Canberra. Things really started to spice up last year when the Chinese ambassador to Australia suggested that the Chinese public could 
boycott Australian produce if the government continued its push for an independent inquiry into the origins of COVID-19. In December, Australia got a new trade minister in Dan Tian. One of his first jobs was to write to his Chinese counterpart seeking to settle the dispute. He says he's still waiting on a reply. Keep waiting. I said when I became trade minister that I would take a very proactive stance, that I would take a very principled stance, but also a very patient stance where necessary. Will you now refer China to the WTO over the wine tariffs? Well, look, that, that's something that we've got under active consideration. Uh, I've been in discussions with the industry about what is the, the next course of action. Uh, and as I've said, one of the things that I was very committed to when I became Trade Minister was taking a very principled approach. So where there has been injury to our industry, then I think we should use all the mechanisms that we have available to us. So when might you make a call on that? I would um, assume that we'll be in a a position to decide what we're going to do next uh, in the coming weeks. Okay, it's not just wine grapes that are in hot water with China. I understand there have been significant delays to Australian table grapes. What's your understanding of that situation? We're trying to work out what is the cause of the hold-up. About 80% of our table grape exports seem to have got in seamlessly. It seems to be the, the last 20% where there are some issues. So, so that's 20% in, of grapes spoiling? Uh, well, potentially, yes. Yeah, some of them have been held up. Uh, at at the border. So we're trying to just get an assessment of what's going on. And one of the things where the industry can help us is make sure they keep us informed from what they're hearing from their Chinese customers on the ground. Would you now classify table grapes the same way as perhaps cotton and lobster? Well, we're working through the issue and trying to get a real understanding. And we we don't want to jump to any any conclusions. At at first, it seemed like it was just one particular port where there seemed to be a, a problem. So we're trying to work through all this and uh, we'll keep assessing it. We'll keep talking to, to the industry. We understand how important the market is to them and we want to we want to get to the bottom of it. And that's why our officials are also working through this issue with, our China, with Chinese officials. Federal Trade Minister Dan Tian finishing that report, looking at how the industry is hit hardest by Chinese trade tensions are faring one year on. Now, demand for land freight is booming, but finding enough workers to move goods across the country has become a major concern. The freight and logistics sector is grappling with a shortage of truck drivers, an issue compounded by an ageing workforce. Lachlan Bennett caught up with a few industry leaders to chat about the shortage and some young Tasmanians getting their start in the industry. Life on the open road. It became a reality for Tate Vanderfeen when he started working as a truck driver five years ago. Uh, it's pretty good. You're out your own boss almost. Get to see some pretty cool sunrises and sunsets, and um, yeah, see a lot of the coast that you don't normally see. The 24-year-old grew up in Devonport in northwest Tasmania, and he currently drives trucks for De Bruins Transport. Uh, I normally start early in the morning, so normally organised through the day before and get my load ready to go and, and set off down the highway, normally down towards Hobart or Launceston or wherever wherever the loads need to go. It's pretty fun and always changing, something different nearly every day. But new recruits like Tate are few and far between and the industry is facing a serious shortage of drivers. We've got some challenges in the industry that relate to our workforce. That's Michelle Harwood. 
She's the executive director of the Tasmanian Transport Association. We've got two key areas that are major challenges for us. The first is in our driver workforce, a critical group of people that we need to move freight efficiently within Tasmania. And the second is in the mechanical trades workforce. We've, we've uh, got a shortage across both the, the heavy vehicle servicing sector, but I think also in the uh, general retail and light vehicle sector of, of qualified mechanics. So both of those areas are impacting us as an industry. The driver shortage is one which is being felt across uh, most sectors of industry, but it's also uh, not just in Tasmania, it's a national, it's actually a global shortage of drivers. So it's really difficult to estimate uh, and quantify the scale to you know, a really clear understanding. We're working with our members at the moment, but we think that at a minimum we could drop another 100 trained heavy vehicle drivers into the industry over the next 12 months and they would all find um, you know, work very quickly. There's a lot of things driving the shortage. We've got um, such an increase in the uh, freight task within Tasmania and we know that while rail plays a really important part, um, around 82% of the uh, land freight task falls to road and the trucks need somebody to drive them. They simply don't drive themselves. So we have got an increase in the freight task. We have got an ageing workforce. Road, uh, transport is the oldest workforce in Tasmania. So our average uh, age of a driver is in their 50s. And so we've got a lot of drivers who will be retiring over the next 10 to 15 years. And at the same time, we've got a really big increase in the freight task. So that's driving it. We've also got competition from other industries. We've got competition from other states. So uh, Western Australia, is, is keen for drivers. They've got a massive shortage. Every state's got a shortage of drivers. That's Michelle Harwood. She's the Executive Director of the Tasmanian Transport Association, ending that report from Lachlan Bennett. So it's no secret that there's a nationwide truck driver shortage, but the problem seems to be particularly bad for livestock carriers who say drivers won't put up with the manual nature of the work. Mick Foote is a farmer and transport operator based at Birchip in Victoria's Mallee. His sheep trucks are parked up at the moment because he can't find anyone to drive them. He told Angus Verley he's weighing up his future in the industry because of the driver shortage. It's getting harder and harder. We're having a lot of trouble getting livestock drivers, chipper drivers, same thing, farm hands. And everyone you talk to, it's across the board, but especially the livestock trucks. No one wants to well, do the hard yards anymore. So you've actually got two sheep trucks parked up at the moment just because you're too busy to drive them yourself and, and you can't find drivers? That's it, yeah. We're cropping at the moment and we had farm hands who was with us, but he's gone back to the miller because it's obviously rained up there last year and we've been trying to find another farm hand, but very hard to get. Now, Mick, you pointed out there, the labour shortage is pretty bad at the moment across most industries, particularly in agriculture. But you think specifically finding people to cart stock is is the biggest problem for you? Yeah, definitely. Because, I don't know, you know, you've got to wash a stock crate out, you've got to load sheep. Not many people like to do it. Sort of, you've got to have a bit of a background in livestock or a free off a farm or, you know, or really love it. Don't get me wrong, they get paid very well. Like some weeks, some of the drivers will take home $4,000 a week. But yeah, they just get sick of it after a while. You touched there, Mick, on, on the money on offer. Have you tried, are you offering the award rate or are you offering above award to try and attract drivers? Uh, we offer above award rate. They're paid very well. You know, latest model trucks with air conditioned bunks, the work. And as well, everyone around here on the farm, like they're having the same problem. No one can find uh, farm labour anymore. Like 20 years ago, you'd go and pick up a couple of rouseabouts in the pub for the next day, but it's just not happening now. Just not the people around? Not, just not the people around, and, and it's very hard to you know, find the right type of labour. Especially nowadays, like the cropping programs and that, you drive an air season, that, well, you've got to be on the ball a bit with GPS and your depth and all that sort of thing. Like, you just can't.
can't scrub anyone on it. It's not a machine, so you sort of got to do it yourself. You can't find anyone, so therefore the trucks have got to sit there until we finish cropping. And and you've got to do it yourself, Mick, but uh, only so many hours in the day. Well, that's right. Like you know, we knocked off at one o'clock this morning, and started to get half past six. So we're trying to get the cropping program out and over as quick as we can. But yeah, we've still got to, I don't know, about six thousand acres to go. So it's got a bit of time. Yeah. And those two livestock trucks that you've got parked in the shed, they should be out carting livestock. So is that work getting done, or are there or are there people that that can't get their stock carted because there aren't people to drive the stock trucks? Oh, I had to get uh, someone to cart my own sheep the other day for me. That's how desperate we are. So, yeah, I've just got to get other people to fill in to do the job. It's no good for the business, but you can't do much about it. And, Mick, I imagine those trucks, uh, you might be making hefty repayments on them, and yet they're not making you any money at the moment. So how's that going to work out financially? Yeah, well, it's a struggle. Yes, I'm hoping we'll be finished in a couple of weeks, and me and my son Lockie will have to bounce back and do a bit, I suppose. I did have a contact the other day from a bloke in West Australia that's thinking about coming over in a couple of weeks, looking for work, so I'm hoping he comes over. And are you at the point where you're thinking maybe it's not feasible for you to be in the livestock cartage game? I'm very close to that point, Angus. It's uh, all the red tape you've got to go through now, like my wife does the books and like all the mass management, everything to do with the transport, it's just getting harder and harder, all the rules and regulations, and I think that's why a lot of the drivers don't want to do it anymore, because that much involved with it nowadays, and uh, you know, all you got to do is you know, bugger up your long book by a mistake, and it's two hundred dollar fine or something. They just get sick of it. Mick Foote, who's a farmer and transport operator from Birchip in Victoria's Mallee, speaking with Angus Verley. You're listening to Countrywide, Brooke Nindorf with you, and shortly, are you a fan of raspberries? Well, they're usually grown in pretty temperate climates, but a few farmers are trialling some interesting techniques to grow them further north than ever before. Yeah, there's not too many of them in, in Queensland. Yeah, they are a temperate crop, so more attuned to the cooler climates. However, yeah, we're growing them here and harvesting them through winter, so they're out of season to southern Australia. But before that, would you eat meat made from stem cells? Scientists are cultivating proteins from the stem cells of livestock and poultry in labs in a bid to create more sustainable meat. And it could be on supermarket shelves by 2030. Jane McNaughton reports. By using stem cells grown from a cow or DNA from a chicken egg, lab technicians are developing products they say will taste, feel and look exactly the same as a cut of meat from an animal. Stem cells have traditionally been associated with biomedical fields and are now being researched in the realm of cellular agriculture. Professor of Food and Health at the University of New South Wales, Johannes Lekutra, says although it's not yet a commercially viable product in Australia, lab grown from stem cells could be the future of the meat market. You can grow material into edible tissue, uh, which can then grow into those tissues without the use of the animal. So that's what, what makes it attractive. Talking about cultivated meat holds the promise that we can, that we can control climate change better because we can control all of the, the gas exchange, which is different from grass growing somewhere on a meadow or a cow standing on that grass, eating the grass and and having then some some gas release into the air. Another thing is if you, and, and these are solid numbers, if you're looking at a kilogram of beef, you need to produce that kilogram of beef, cost you 15,000 liters of water. If you can do that in a, in a closed system, uh, the promise and idea is clearly, and, and the concept is that you use 
cycling water systems. Israel is leading the lab-grown meat movement and company Meatech is developing a 3D printer that will produce real meat from umbilical cord cells and with the DNA from eggs. The company says it's the first cultured meat technology business to be publicly traded and has received $28 million US dollars in startup funding after listing on the stock exchange in Israel and the US. Simon Freed is the head of business development and he says the end product will replicate the taste, texture and quality of steak. It's a slaughter-free way of making meat. It's meat that's made of the same ingredients that, um, that you'd expect to get from the animal. It's just that uh, the animals don't have to be involved uh, nearly as directly anymore. Uh, it's also a lot more sustainable. We choose to, to take those cell samples from, from umbilical cords for the most part, essentially for sort of ethical reasons. We figure that that's the least inconvenient place from, you know, from the cow's perspective, because it's not actually even taking a sample from an animal. It's taking a sample from, from essentially a piece of tissue. So there's, there's really no uh, inherent uh, original sin in, in, in that sort of approach. Um, and on the work that we're doing using avian cells, where we're, where we're producing chicken uh, cells, those can actually those stem cells can be taken from the egg itself, and that means again that you're not really inconveniencing uh, you know the animal. And then you know the real magic is to once you have that sample, you need to grow them. You want them to multiply, and very quickly you can produce a great number of cells, even starting with a very very small sample. And, and this is uh, why we believe this form of you know you could call it exponential uh, cell agriculture means that from small samples, you know, a great lot of food can be made. Head of Business Development at Meatech, Simon Fried, ending that report by Jay McNaughton. Now, are you a fan of raspberries? Well, they're usually grown in pretty temperate climates, but a few farmers are trialling some interesting techniques to grow them further north than ever before for consumers to eat them all year round. At Wemmeran on the Sunshine Coast, fields that were once strawberries or pineapples have been replaced with domed tarps and potted raspberries. Managing Director of Panata Farms, Gavin Skirt, told Melody Groves is taking a lot of trials, but they're learning a lot. Uh, we've been growing raspberries for five years now. Yeah, there's not too many of them in Queensland. Yeah, they are a temperate crop, so more attuned to the cooler climates. However, yeah, we're growing them here and harvesting them through winter, so they're out of season to southern Australia. How exactly do you do that? How do you make a crop grow something completely out of season? Yeah, the climate here in South Queensland is temperate in winter, so hence we get nice cool mornings and, and nice warm days, which is sort of similar to what raspberries are used to, although in summer. The difference being, obviously, is day length, as you know, days are much shorter uh, in winter than southern Australia is during their summer. So that, that impacts the plant's um, ability to yield fruit, so you don't get quite the yield out of them. However, by growing them out of season, we get less yield, but then they're a little bit more expensive because there's less growing. So raspberry fans pay a bit extra to, to get fruit year-round. And we've already touched on this a little bit, but you're doing a lot of trials because obviously they're not used to growing in these regions. So there's a lot of, it's a massive learning curve, I'm sure. What are some of the trials? What are some of the things that you're looking at with uh, these raspberries here? Yeah, so what, what we're doing um, is trialling different varieties to see how they handle um, the different conditions, to see which you know, variety handles our climate better than others. We're also trialling uh, different planting dates, so planting them later and earlier. We're also doing what's called long cane production, where we actually grow the plant itself in a nursery through the fruiting stage and then chill it uh, in a cool room for a minimum of six weeks, so a thousand hours to chill, so it thinks it's gone through winter. Uh, so we put it in a cool room with no lights on and in zero degrees for six weeks and 
it's um, when we put it out in the field then it wakes up and thinks springs here and pushes out growth and flowers so that gives us again the opportunity to produce fruit at a, at a time of the year when the plant naturally wouldn't be able to do that and all these things are possible because we're growing them in pots rather than in the ground so the pots uh, serve a couple of purposes one is it gives us the ability to pick them up and put them in the cool room and then put them back out again but probably even more importantly it enables us to control the root structure of the plant which enables us to manipulate the plant easier by feeding it and watering it more or less depending on whether we want it to grow vigorously or slow it down and cause stress to make it flower. With this you're already you know targeting a market that you don't normally have raspberries at do you see this as potentially is there is there space for massive growth in the Australian market for raspberries at that time of year? Uh, we believe so yes so um, yeah, we're certainly by no means the, the first to do that also the only people doing this by any means um, however due to the um, the difficulty of growing you know raspberries out of season there's certainly still plenty of growth there because of um, how currently there's not many growing at that time of year because it is so challenging you know, as, as an industry the raspberry industry going gangbusters you know, people consumers are, are really getting on onto raspberries they're certainly a lot more affordable than they used to be and the varieties that we've got now as an industry are, are amazing you know they're like nature's lollies so um, uh, sales are, are very strong and that you know, gives us confidence to keep investing in, in being able to have a, you know, a more stable supply throughout the year. Gavin Skur from Panada Farms on the Sunshine Coast speaking with Melanie Groves. Well, that's all we have time for on Countrywide today. You can find more on these stories and many more online at abc.net.au rural. I'm Brooke Neindorf. Thanks for your company.